the period between March and um, May, we had about 70% of our participants suspend all support. Um, so they made the decision. Yeah, so it was quite a huge impact for us as an organisation. My name's Francis Lynch. Thanks for joining me on the Comments and Musings podcast. Today, I speak to Anne-Marie Davis, the CEO of Amicus, a disability organisation in Victoria, and we talk about the impacts of COVID-19 on her organisation. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thanks for joining me on the Comments and Musings podcast. I'm talking to leaders from a range of organisations in the community, health and aged care sectors about how they have adapted to the impacts of COVID-19 in 2020. We're recording this in September, so we're a few months in now and we've all made a lot of changes about how we're working. Um, Can I ask you to uh, tell me about Amicus uh, and, and what you do? Yes, so Amicus is a um, community service organisation delivering services in central and northern Victoria, predominantly to um, vulnerable children and youth and people with a disability of all ages. So we deliver a range of services um, funded by both Department of Health and Human Services and the NDIS. And and you've been doing this in the community for quite a while, haven't you? Yes. So we have a particular focus of community-based support for our organisation. So um, our service model is either delivered in people's homes or in the community. So we don't have uh, a facility-based response of of any kind. And we also um, only provide a very small number of um, group programs, so predominantly Every person that we support at Amicus is supported one person at a time. And, you know, that um, provides different opportunities, but also different challenges in uh, a COVID environment as well. Yeah. And one person at a time, that's that's really important to you, isn't it? That certainly is important. Um, so we would consider that to be, I guess, the basis of our organisational philosophy that underpins the way that we work with all of our participants. So I'm wondering how COVID-19 might have impacted Amicus this year. Mm. Uh, it's a good question and hindsight is a valuable thing. I, <laughs> in March, I had no idea how something like COVID might have impacted Amicus and any of the scenario planning or modelling that we may have done uh, certainly um, probably wouldn't have equipped any of us for uh, the sustained impact of COVID, uh, particularly in Victoria and Uh, But I guess Amicus is an essential service. So the services that we provide for the majority of um, people are absolutely um, essential. One of the things that we did very early on, because we do work one person at a time, is that we contacted every participant at Amicus to understand what, if it became very difficult for us to deliver services, what were the most important services for them to to receive so that their well-being wasn't impacted. So in the period between March and um, May, we had about 70% of our participants suspend all support. Um, So they made the decision. Yeah, so it was quite a huge impact for us as an organisation. And, look, the rationale for most people 
in making that decision was based on the fact that they either had vulnerable health themselves or they were living in a household with somebody who had vulnerable health. And as with all of us, we were really just learning about um, coronavirus and, and COVID-19. As we went along, there was if anybody was declaring themselves an expert, they were, you know, they were misrepresenting themselves. We really didn't understand, um, I don't think, in the early days. Um, so people took the, you know, we're being very preemptive in terms of, you know, taking the approach of uh, self-isolation. So um, that was uh, our impact and our experience. And, and were some of those people who were not using services, were they still in contact? Like were, were your people in contact with them? Or? Yes. So we made sure um, that we maintained regular contact and we identified individuals um, who we considered to be vulnerable, whether they identified themselves as vulnerable or not, but, you know, uh, they may live alone, they may have mm. an aging carer and a cognitive impairment. So we had uh, a range of, um, I guess, um, priority indicators for us to or vulnerability indicators for us to make sure that we kept in regular contact uh, with participants. Yeah. There were others um, whom we asked how, you know, how often would you like us to remain in contact because we wanted to, wherever possible, maintain sort of a weekly check-in, you know, because it was a it was a time where information was regularly changing, you know, and yeah. even though you're communicating um, through all of your platforms, sending letters on social media, on your website, we really just wanted to have that personal touch and check in with people and make sure that they had a clear understanding of, um, you know, what was happening next or what was happening now. Yeah, and, and so as, you know, as Victoria's gone into the second wave and the, the lockdown the second time round, has that uh, sort of time lapse and, and what you've all learnt, both, both I suppose, um, service users and, and you as the, the organisation, I mean, has that changed in terms of people still um, wanting to put their, their service packages on hold or are more people actually more okay more with that? More people are engaging. I think people feel yeah. a bit more com or or either their, their first experience was so horrible <laughs> in terms of, you know, whether it was being feeling alone or boredom or whatever it may have been, even those yeah. are restricted uh, range of activities that people can be um, supported to undertake. Um, but so we still experienced um, suspensions, as we're calling them, because people aren't, you know, they're just choosing not to um, not to receive services for a period of time. And I think given that this time there was a time frame, so we we're really clear, well, at the beginning that it was <laughs> going to be until September the 13th. Yeah. Um, and I think that for some people, they're like, okay, that's okay, the finish line's in sight. I think that we can do it again. You know, we will just not have a risk. And, I, look, I think that people had actually had a perception that this time was likely to be worse than the first time, mm. particularly um, if we look at central Victoria where there was – or central and northern Victoria where there was a relatively low um, transmission rate in um, – in the first wave, but as yeah. we went to the second wave and particularly we started, you know, um, to see the numbers take off very quickly, um, both in metropolitan and regional um, areas that I think most pe people who did choose um, to suspend their services did that with a six-week time frame in mind. Um, but 
this time for the second wave, we've had about 50% cancellation. So there's about 20% more who have, um, I think, are feeling confident, possibly too around, um, you know, the feedback that we get is that people are very happy, you know, with, you know, our level of training um, that's been provided to staff, you you know, um, access to PPE. I mean, these were issues that were very difficult for all um, community service organisations to solve during May. Yes, they were. Uh, sorry, March and April, yeah. because uh, we may we did have a small stockpile of um, PPE, but certainly um, it not to the level that was required in terms of um, the directions of Department of Health and Human Services at the state level. Yeah, and and it certainly has been, you know, in the community services and disability now. I mean, the the it's it's not even optional; it's mandatory. You have to wear that Absolutely. PPE when you go into somebody's environment and and Absolutely. and be working with them. So I think people have a different level of confidence as well. So, um, yeah. So notwithstanding the fact that we still had people choose to um, suspend their supports, those that have remained engaged they would be some of the factors that have, I guess, um, given them confidence to do so. Yeah, and how's that impacted your staff in terms of, you know, people who in some cases would have been supporting a person in the community for, yep. for quite a period of time and, and then not being asked, like being asked to sort of stay away for a period. Yeah. So how's that impacted them? Look, it's been difficult. Uh, there is the connection that our staff, obviously working one person at a time, you build up yeah. a very close relationship um, with participants and, and families and, you know, the, the participants' wider network. So that was certainly challenging from an emotive level for staff. Um, there's also the financial impact too. So with mm, such mm. a significant um, decrease and times were so uncertain, particularly in the first wave, and as a provider, Amicus was eligible for JobKeeper but not until the, you know, sort of uh, it was July. <laughs> so for most people it was like, oh, that's all, you know, um, well, what do we need to apply for JobKeeper for because, you know, it's all over now. But um, I think we've got about 130 staff who are eligible for JobKeeper. Um, yeah. And... That has helped in the second wave because even though we haven't had as many people suspend their services, there's still been um, impacts for staff around employment and paying their mortgage. And I think there's another um, another layer of uh, I think we can talk about there were there were you know there's, there's been a fearful situation for many staff. You know they feel that yeah. they're at the cold face, um, and, if and they're I putting be, themselves at risk. That's it. And if I could be quite candid, um, particularly in the early months, there was a real focus on frontline workers equaling nursing staff or doctors or um, so first responders. But in our sector, we have staff who um, don't have, didn't have PPE because our sector wasn't prioritised. Um, mm. While we were able to provide them with training, um, it was. You know, it was very difficult. It was they were very frightened that they would go to work and um, catch Corona or COVID nineteen and take it back to their families. So, mm. and it's I, I mean I I know that 
um, the dialogue has shifted and certainly um, the community services sector and in particular disability services sector, there have been there's been a change in in the dialogue and the way that um, our sector is described. And I think that's been very reassuring yeah. for our staff because they were just feeling like, hey, you know, we're in here doing similar work and, and, um, and you know, the risks for us aren't being identified or acknowledged. So that was that was a real tension, I think, in particularly in the early months. And and I think the um you know the work when people are going into into houses in the community or or being with people in the community, it's hidden. So it's yeah. not like being in a hospital or being in an aged care facility. Well, and there's certainly not a hand wash facility in every you know in every room <laughs> either, which is you know of course that yeah. was our first line of protection um, initially, um, and it's still our first line of protection but you know there are other measures that are now in place for us you know for our sector who have direct um, client facing work that are a requirement that provide additional safety yeah so so i know you you sort of mentioned around the ppe and and you know the changes in the way that people have been asking you know so some people have been suspending services i mean have you had to sort of adapt your service delivery model to cope with what's been going on this year so really, one of the beauties of working one person at a time is that we can have that, you know, we can be really flexible in the way that we design a, a service around a participant. So uh, mm. really, we've still been very much guided, well, firstly, by what what we are able to legally <laughs> do. Mm. Uh, so of course, we're we in no matter what um, state or territory we live in in Australia, we've had um, our own requirements in terms of um, whether it's a state of emergency or a state of disaster or whatever stage we've been up to and the restrictions that go with that. So that is the first threshold that support requests must pass. So, of course, we can't deliver services that will be in contravention of um, of a direction, um, a mm. law direction. But um, yep. outside of that, we work with uh, participants. So there may have... Uh, certainly, um, the NDIS had some particular requirements around the way that supports are delivered. So initially, um, it was seen as an unbillable service if we were to go and um, do grocery shopping on behalf of a participant. So unless the participant was with us, there were some real challenges around um, whether that was a billable service or not. But of course, how ridiculous is that? Our, you know, particularly yeah. working with um, with people who have vulnerable health, and the supermarket is the last place that you, um, you know, would be wanting to take somebody with vulnerable health at this point in time. So some of those um, restrictions have eased over time, which has been helpful. But um, there were certainly a few of those battles early on. So, so in terms of what's been, you know, you've obviously had to take a lot of decisions over this last six months um were you looking at what was happening outside of the disability and community services sector or was it really just seeing what was happening and what the directions from you know the ndis and the dhhs yeah. were well it's really interesting i probably shouldn't be recorded saying this but i was really taking my guidance from the victorian state government because if i was going yep. to jail for getting something wrong it was going to be because <laughs> i was in breach of a you know a lawful direction so, you know, certainly um, that's really where I was taking my lead from 
and I was prepared to have um, to to be in the corner with the NDIS commissioner on that one, you know. And it's been, I think, what has been interesting, um, without any particular political commentary, but it has been interesting to see how uh, the jurisdictional interplay has um, impacted on, you know, our experience. So, yeah. Do you have services in the cross-border? Do you go into New South Wales? We don't presently. So we're only incorporated in Victoria at the present time. But, um, yeah. but that would have been another interlay, interplay, interface that I was happy just with my little patch. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of... Uh, you know, we're six months in, we don't know how long this is going to last for, but are you at the point where you're starting to look forward and do you have any ideas or plans about what you think will happen for Amicus over the next couple of years? Well, I don't think any of us are going to look at the cold and flu season in the same way ever again, you know. So I'm <laughs> sure that <laughs> that uh, coronavirus and COVID will eventually pass, whether that's through um herd immunity, a vaccine, whatever it may be, but, you know, it won't, yeah. it will It will pass in time. Um, that's my belief. Um, yeah. Look, I think that it will change. I think there'll be a change in the way that people want to have their services delivered potentially. They may, I think, certainly until we experience quite a period of low or no transmission, I think it will impact on people's, I guess, desire to be, you know, exposed too much to large group settings, even if that's mm. possible, you know, and a big part of our work has been involving people in the community. And while I would like to see that happen, I, I the the feeling that I get is that there, there A, will be a reduction in opportunity and B, people's aspirations may not be as lofty for a little while. I think there will be yeah. you no... Know, um, that will be an impact that we will see at, at the personal level. You know, I think from a, um, I guess, if we look not at the, if we look at the organisational level, I think that there's going to be a big impact on all sectors in terms of um, funding available for anything really other than what's essential. You know, so some of the opportunities around innovation, I think, will be lost for a little while. Yeah, and certainly, um, you know, going back to where we were 12 months ago, it sort of seems like a, uh, a different world at the moment. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll um, I suppose, have to be uh, aware of what the opportunities are and, and um, sort of work them through today. as they come up. Yeah. So, look, thank you, Anne-Marie, for, for your time today. Uh, look, it's been interesting, actually quite interesting. I wasn't aware of some of the um, uh, the impacts that it was having on an organisation like Amicus. And uh, I'm a little surprised, actually. I didn't realise that, you know, so many service users were suspending packages. And I can imagine yeah. that that's had a big impact on, on those people in the community, but also yeah. on you as an organisation and your yeah. staff. And so thank you for your time and, and giving us those insights. Thank you, Francis. <laughs>